Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys again. My name is Brandon. If you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors that is here. Good to have you here with us this morning. Uh, this morning, we're actually going to wrap up our time studying in the book of Colossians. And, uh, but before we get to our time in Colossians, just wanted to give you a quick preview of where we're headed the next couple weeks in this summer. Um, so uh, the next two weeks, Aaron's going to be preaching. Next week, I think, is just really important. I just really would encourage and invite you to be here. Um, Aaron's going to be uh, preaching on the topic of baptism and what that means and what that's about. And I just think it's just something that's really important for us as a church to understand well and to have just like appropriate understanding of that. And so I just really would encourage you to be here for that. And then uh, Aaron's going to be preaching again the following week. And then uh, starting in May, uh, I think the first week of May, uh, we are going to be spending the whole summer studying through the book of Proverbs. And uh, I don't know how many of you have read Proverbs or regularly read Proverbs. I think a lot of people have attempted to start the book of Proverbs because uh, there's 31 days in a month and there's 31 chapters in Proverbs and like everyone's gotten to at least day one and a half of like spending time reading their Bible. And so you may have gotten through Proverbs chapter one and thought, I have no idea what this is talking about, right? Uh, and so uh, this summer we're going to be studying the book of Proverbs. One of the things I think is so encouraging about that I'm most looking forward to is Proverbs is just an incredibly practical and helpful book as we think about what it looks like for us to actually live as God's people in this world. It's full of tons of practical wisdom about what is good and what is true and what is right and what it looks like to live in light of those kinds of things. And so um, I, it's been really encouraging for me as I've been studying it in order to prepare and teach it in the, in the coming months. And so um, I think it's just good too. Proverbs is a wisdom literature, so there are many genres of literature. Oftentimes we'll be in an epistle, which is a letter. For example, Colossians is an epistle. There's The Gospels are uh, more of a narrative type of story. There's um, The Psalms is poetry. But the Proverbs is uh, part of a group of literature in the Bible called wisdom literature. And we don't really spend a lot of time in there. And so I'm really looking forward to exposing us as God's people to more and more of God's word together as we teach it here on Sundays. So... Um, but more than that, I'm looking forward to how Proverbs will show us where true wisdom is really found. Colossians chapter 2, 3 reminds us that uh, all of the book of Proverbs, it really is about pointing us towards Jesus. Uh, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so I'm excited to show us how Proverbs is really all about Jesus and points, points us to him. So uh, looking forward to that. This morning, though, we wrap up our time in the book of Colossians. And uh, Colossians, it's been really good for my heart as we've been studying this book. I hope it has been for you as well. Just to, as we sit in and as we enjoy the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus in all things and how those truths really change who we are at a fundamental uh, heart level. And I hope as well that our time in Colossians has been challenging for you, especially these last two weeks as we've, as we've talked about what it looks like to put off sin and to put on Christ-like character in light of the new identity that we have because of the gospel. And so I trust that God's been convicting you and calling you to live out who he has already declared you are. As we saw at the beginning of the book of Colossians, Paul spent the first half of the letter reminding us about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus and about the identity that we have when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our faith in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. These things we talked about over the last few weeks, these things are called the indicatives of the gospel. They are, they are the truths about what, they're, what is true about us in light of what is true about Jesus. 
And for the last two weeks, what we saw is kind of we hit chapter 3 as Paul takes a turning point and he begins with the indicatives of the gospel, but he moves on to the imperatives. If the indicatives are what is true, then the imperatives are what we do in light of what is true. The truth always changes us. It always changes who we are. What we saw over the last few weeks is that Paul is calling the Colossian believers and us as well to be who God has declared we already are. Be who God has declared you already are. And what we've seen over the past few weeks is that we don't do that with by fear-driven effort or pride-driven effort or guilt-driven effort. Those things just get us legalism, but instead we do it with grace-driven effort as we respond to all that Jesus has done for us. It both motivates us and empowers us to obey and to live in light of God's commands and to honor him with all things. It looks like us putting sin to death with grace-driven effort, and it also, last week we saw it looks like us putting on Christ-like character in a sense of community. Paul began chapter 3, he began this whole new section of Colossians with these words. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Paul's been describing for us what new life in Christ looks like. Our new life in Christ is meant to change everything about us. Our passage last week ended, verse chapter 3, verse 17 ended, and so in whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, every part of our lives is meant to reveal something about God. It's meant to to reveal Jesus as our Savior, as our King, as our Lord. Every part of our lives is meant to bring God glory and meant to bring praise to him. That's what everything about who we are, that's what it's all about And as we wrap up our study in Colossians this morning, what we're going to see Paul do is he's going to highlight three key relationships in which we are to live lives that reveal God's ways, that reveal something about who God is and what he's like, that reveal the character of Christ in a different way than the world would see it. There are three relationships that we get to apply verse 17 to. In whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Three relationships that Paul applies that verse into. And he's talking about relationships in the family, relationships at work, and lastly, relationships with our friends and our neighbors who don't know Jesus yet. And so the question this morning is going to be, what will it look like? What does it look like for us to represent Jesus well? What does it look like for us to reflect his character, to reflect his attitudes, to reflect who he is and what he has done for us in those relationships, in our relationships at home, at work, and with our friends and our neighbors and our family that don't know Jesus yet? So with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our passage and our study this morning. Jesus, we just come before you this morning. We're just so grateful that you would preserve your word for us so that we might know you in it. Now, we want to live in light of who you are and who you've made us to be, and so we are so grateful that you would uh, call us to live like your son, Jesus. God, we just confess that we don't have what we need in and of ourselves to do that. We don't even want it in and of ourselves. God, but we need you to put your spirit in us so that we might live for you every day. So we ask, God, that you would just graciously be reminding us about the gospel this morning and all that you've done, and so that our motivations for responding to your word wouldn't be out of guilt or out of duty or obligation or shame or fear, but they'd be out of just love for you and all that you have done for us. And so, God, we just pray that you'd make much of your son Jesus this morning. I'd be for our good, for your glory. God, I need you to make that happen. I don't have what I need without you in me. God, we need you so that we might I might teach well. We need you so that we might hear well. 
Thank you for giving us your word. We want to sit under it this morning in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pastor on the screen. But if you don't have a Bible, there's a stack of Bibles in the corner. Man, take one of those. It is totally yours. We would love to give that to you. We're in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 4, chapter 6. There's a couple of verses at the end of Colossians that we're not going to have time to get to this morning, and they're kind of Paul's closing greeting. And if you want to ask questions about that, or if you have questions about that, you should send me an email. I'd love to talk more about it. But we're in 3.18 through 4.6. Beginning in verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. For it's in Christ, for it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Likewise, masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God would open a door for our message so that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I would proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you would know how to answer everyone. Again, our passage this morning is in the bigger context of chapter 3. And again, right before this, verse 17, whatever you do, do all of it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul's describing here what our new life in Christ looks like and how our new life in Christ changes these relationships in the home, at work, and with our non-Christian friends and neighbors and co-workers. And he says, new life in Christ changes our relationships in the home. The first relationship in our passage addressed this morning is the marriage relationship. Probably because that's the easiest one to do anything in, right? That was a joke. You can laugh. That was a joke. Marriage is really hard. Anybody who's married for more than like 15, 20 minutes knows that marriage is really difficult. Like it's challenging. It is, it's, it is really a, just a wonderful gift, but it's hard. Sometimes it feels a lot more like you're fighting against somebody instead of for one another. It's really difficult to deeply share our lives with someone. And I think the kind of relationship we see in a marriage is you, you get to see the best parts of each other. But you also see the dirt as well. You see the best parts and you see the worst. It's just a matter of time before those relationships, before it becomes hard. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the hardships we face in marriage, sadly, are self-inflicted injuries. You see, too often what happens is we go into marriage believing that marriage is really about us. It's about fulfilling needs we have. It's about providing something that we need. We believe functionally that it's about us. But verse 17 reminds us, and throughout chapters 1 and 2, Paul's proclaimed to us that everything in the Christian life is really about Jesus. 
Everything is really about him. Our marriages are about him. Our families are about him. Our work is about him. Our, our uh, relationships with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, what we do, what we say, the way we spend our money, the way we live, all of that. It's really ultimately all about Jesus. And so is it any surprise then that our marriage relationship should be about God as well? The problem is, is our deep-rooted selfishness causes us to think and believe and therefore act as though marriage is really about us. That its primary design and purpose is to bring us happiness or satisfaction or fulfillment or pleasure or joy. And don't get me wrong. These things are wonderful benefits of marriage. They are such blessings that God gives us in the relationship of marriage. But they're not the ultimate thing. They're gifts from the greatest giver of all. What happens is far too often we just ignore or flat out reject that the very design and the purpose of marriage, like every other part of our lives, is really actually about God. Its primary design and purpose is to bring Him glory. It's to reflect something about who He is and what He is like. God invented marriage. He designed it. He thought it up. And He knows how it works and what it's for. And so if our marriages are going to work as they were designed and exist for their true purpose, then we've got to see it as God sees it and live in light of how He sees it. Verse 18 in our passage begins, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What does that mean? There has been innumerable amounts of pages spilled about what that means. I want to offer two answers to that question. One, what does it mean? And two, what does it absolutely not mean? One, what does it mean? This is a definition I think I stole from Becky Morrow at one point in time. She wrote it this way. She said, submission is a voluntary attitude of cooperation, encouragement, and help. It's about coming alongside and supporting. This is in contrast to a begrudging participation, to fighting or to passive aggressiveness, or to being critical when things get hard. The Bible uses the word helper to describe Adam's wife, Eve. Elsewhere in the Bible, that word describes military reinforcements needed to win the battle. Kathy Keller, just just an incredibly wise woman, in, in her book, The Meaning of Marriage, she writes, to help someone then is to make up for what is lacking in them with your strength. God knew what your husband was lacking, and he gave him, to, gave him you to be his strong reinforcements. I'm so grateful for how that is true of my relationship with my wife, Hannah. I have so many weaknesses. I'm so grateful for all of the ways that where I zig, Hannah zags, or the ways that I have deficiencies, she has strengths. Many of you experience the blessings of that relationship because you get the best of both of us rather than just like the holes of both of us. That's been such a blessing to me. You see, submission is a gift you get to offer to your husband wives. Susan Aiken writes it this way, As wives, our submission is a gift we offer with a humble heart. We choose to submit to our husbands as a way of loving and honoring them. Imitating Jesus does not show weakness, but greatness as we die to ourselves for the good of our marriage as it becomes a visual picture of Christ's love and of his glory. So the question is, what does submission look like? Uh, I did not come up with this list exclusively on my own. I talked to a number of wise women in the church that I respect, and that I asked them, you know, what, what does it mean? What does it look like? for what, what do you think submission looks like? And here's some of the things that stuck out to me about what they had said over the years. A lot of what submission looks like is how, we, how you speak to your husband. Are you encouraging him? Are you building him up? Are you affirming the godly things that you see in him? 
Or are you condescending or critical or belittling? This is, I just cannot express this more clearly. How you speak to your husband in front of other people, that matters a massive amount. There are few things that are more damaging to a man's heart than to be talked down to or to be belittled in front of others. So the way that you use your words in public and in private as you speak to your husband, man, that offers, that can be such an incredible gift or it can be such an incredible hurt. Secondly, when it comes to decision-making, Submission looks like affirming and encouraging your husband to lead. It's not about being absent. It's not about being uninvolved. It's not about getting trampled over. It's not about never having an opinion. Rather, it's about standing behind where your husband feels like God is leading your family and supporting those decisions. It's about encouraging that. Just leading is hard. Any, being a leader in any kind of organization, in any kind of anything, leading is difficult. And it's even more hard when it feels like there's condescension or it feels like there's opposition. One of the things, women that, and wives, that you can do most helpfully to encourage your husbands is to encourage them as you see them leading, as you see them growing in leadership in your family and in your relationship, as you see those things, encourage them, thank them for that, help to build those things up in them. Taking responsibility is hard. Affirm it when you see it. Lastly, be characterized by a willingness and a voluntary humble spirit and attitude. Not begrudging or resentful or reluctant, but rather one who is just who is genuinely wants to come alongside, who genuinely wants to walk with your husband. So I think that's a, a hopefully that's a helpful picture of what submission means. Just needs to be clear. What does submission not mean? Just this is really important. Submission does not mean that as a wife you have any less value or worth. I just want to reiterate that. Submission does not mean as a woman you have any less value or worth. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. It doesn't mean that he was less valuable or worthless. It was a choice that he made. Secondly, submission does not, does not mean passive, unconditional obedience. A lot of godless, idiotic men have used passages like this to oppress women and to belittle women and to make themselves great. And that is about the farthest possible outworking of the truths of God's word and God's heart for husbands and wives that could possibly have resulted from that. And so if you have been harmed or oppressed or or hurt by some childish boy who decides to use passages like this to oppress women, then I just need you to hear that's not God's heart, that's not his design, that's not the truth of his word, that's, that's total garbage. Additionally, submission does not mean that a wife can't push back or can't confront her spouse. I am so grateful for the ways that Hannah has pushed back against my poor leadership, confronted me in my sin over the years. In fact, that's one of the things that first drew me to her. In college, we were serving on a leadership team together, and he was willing to call me out on crap in my own life. Like, I can't tell you how much, like, how, that, that was so valuable to me. In our marriage now, Hannah isn't just somebody who's just like, all right, Brandon, I'll go along with whatever you say. She calls me out on my crap. She calls me out on the issues that I have, and she graciously walks alongside me and partners with Jesus in transforming my heart. I am so thankful for that. Submission does not mean that you just idly sit by and just let something happen. 
Lastly, what if your husband is not a Christian or isn't actively following Jesus? First Peter says it this way, honor the Lord and seek to honor your husband. In so doing, you might win him to the Lord. The invitation is, wives, as you think about what it looks like to submit to your husband, it's not always about whether somebody is worth submitting to. It's about Jesus always being worth obeying. We always put God's commands before our husbands. And so if there's anything your husband ever asks you to do or tells you to do that is not in line with God's word, then you can chuck that stuff, right? But the invitation is that we might honor the Lord and we might put obeying him as the thing of most value. Lastly, young women, if you are here this morning, if you are not married, marriage is not this ultimate picture of fulfillment in the world. And a, 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 a guy will never fulfill something that, you, that the Lord cannot fulfill. But I will say this, Wait for a guy who is worth submitting to. Choose carefully who you might marry. Choose carefully who you might uh, partner with in your life as you think about serving the Lord and following him. The first guy with a ring is not always the best guy. You want to find someone who is worth submitting to, who is worth putting yourself under their leadership, who is worth loving, who is worth being served by, who is worth honoring in that kind of way. So wait for someone who shows you the kind of love that Jesus has shown you instead of somebody who just tells you that they love you. See, the passage goes on and it talks to husbands as well as wives. It's not just to wives. Verse 19 says, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. That word translated love here is the Greek word agape. There's, in Greek, there are multiple words that mean love and they have different implications. In the Greek here, this word, the word agape translated as love here, it talks about a kind of love that is sacrificing and serving Ephesians chapter 5 uses this same word. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. One commentator writes this. He says, a marriage may begin with normal human romantic love, but it must grow past that. Ephesians 5, Paul makes it clear that the husband should love his wife even as Christ loved the church. Paul saying, Jesus laid down his life. Philippians 2 says, Jesus did not consider himself as more important than us. That's the kind of love that the Bible talks about when it talks about the husband's love for a wife. It is a sacrificing kind of love. Is it a love which puts the good of your wife far before your own good? Which puts her needs and her desires and her passions and her flourishing way before your own. Not just barely before, long before your own. One commentator, I think, just really articulated it this way. He says, the measure of a man's love is not only seen in gifts or words, but in acts of service and a concern for his wife's heart and welfare. You see, you can say that you love someone, but your actions show what is really true. Loving Hannah, for me, when we were dating, I waited a really long time to tell her that I loved her because I was afraid that what I would say wouldn't actually be true. I, was like, I, I felt in love with her much more quickly than I told her that because I wanted to make sure that my actions had shown that that was true, that it wasn't just some emotional thing. 
For me, loving my wife, loving Hannah, looks like actively putting her needs and her desires before my own. These are some ways that it looks like for me. It might look differently for you guys as you think about how you love and serve your wives. But for me, one of the ways that I do that is by scheduling my life in a way that matters to her needs. My schedule as a pastor is relatively flexible, so I try to work when it might be inconvenient for me but helpful for her. I take one morning off a week um, because I'm working here on Sundays, and I don't just say, hey, what, what day would I like to have off? I ask her, hey, Hannah, what would be the best day for our family? What's the best fit for you? How can I give you rest? What would be the best fit for that? And if I still have work to do on Saturdays, which happens sometimes, I do that after the kids go to sleep, which is usually after Hannah and, and Well. It looks like, additionally, me taking taking initiative in caring for our kids rather than just being asked. It looks like me getting up with the kids in the morning, even though I would much rather be sleeping in, in order to give Hannah time to wake up slowly. She spends the next eight hours with them. I can take a little bit. It also looks like loving her looks like looking for ways for me to give her rest and to help her to grow. As a mom, her job is 24-7, 365, really no vacations and no breaks. You're always on as a mom. You don't get weekends. It's just like more actual, more regular days. And so I look for ways to give her breaks and to give her time off because that is hard. It's exhausting. And so Wednesday nights, I take the kids. Um, Hannah is a planner, so for her, knowing that something is in the schedule and a break is coming, that really blesses her. So she can plan on that and look forward to that and, and think about having rest. Also, I try to look for other times in order to take the kids when, she, when we're home together so that I can just give her breast or give her a break. It looks like prioritizing her desires above my own. Before I go out or do anything I want or work on projects that I want to work on, I try to ask, what is it that you want to get done? What are the things that are on your list today? What are the ways that I can serve you? What are the things that are important to you? I try to always ask her if there's anything that I can do for her before I leave the house in the mornings. It's not because I don't have things that I want to work on. It's not because I don't have my own priorities. It's not because I don't have things that I need to do. It's because I want to put her needs before my own. I think as well, loving my wife well means that when I fail and when I live for myself, which happens more than I want it to, it means I need to come to her and I need to apologize, which hopefully she knows I do often. It's not about being perfect. Loving your wife is not about having this perfect track record. But it is about acknowledging your failures. It is about acknowledging where you fall short. Asking her to help you in the midst of that. I'm so thankful for the ways I've often been able to come to my wife and ask her for forgiveness, ask her for patience with me in the ways that she's just so generously given that to me and helped me walk in that as I seek to love her well. So the passage says, verse 18, love your wives' husbands. But it also says, don't be harsh with them. You see, the value of women in Paul's day was as second-class citizens. And Paul here is increasing the value of women in his original audience. They're not second-class citizens to be treated as servants. They are people who are treated to be treated as people who are loved and cared for before yourself. There's no room for tyranny. There's no room for oppression. There's no room for mistreatment. There's no room for abuse. The love and character in which a husband is supposed to treat his wife is supposed to be resembled out of Jesus who gave himself up for his church. Husbands who abuse their wives, that is is rebellion. That is wicked sinfulness. 
There's no place for that in the church. There's no place for that in God's kingdom. There's no place for that in our world. One commentator, I think, just helpfully writes this. He says, a husband who truly loves his wife will not behave harshly or try to throw his weight around at home. Rather, he'll show the kind of love that has been shown to him in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. That's the kind of way that we've been loved by Jesus. So a husband's love for his wife is seen in his sacrifice for her, and a wife's love for her husband is seen in her submission to him. And therefore, where there is sacrifice and submission, Christ is reflected and honored in our marriages. But where there is selfishness, there will always be conflict, and there will always be division. And so the way that we relate to one another in marriage, it's really all about God. But the passage goes on because the way that parents and children relate together is also all about God. In verse 20, it says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Note the reasoning. He doesn't say because they're always right, because they always make sense, because they always know what's best. None of those are the reasons that Paul gives. He says, obey your parents because it honors the Lord. It pleases the Lord. That's different motivation than just begrudging obedience because you have to. Rather, it's motivated by wanting to please the Lord and honor Him. So much of our relationships with people, we believe that it's based on whether or not that person is worthy of being loved, is worthy of being submitted to, is worthy of being obeyed. And Jesus says, I'm worthy. I'm always worthy of being obeyed. And I'm asking you to live this way. It's not about them. It's about me. Verse 21, fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Notice who this is addressed to. It's addressed to fathers. Too many fathers just pass the buck on raising their kids or they run a dictatorship. Dads, the buck needs to stop with you as you think about parenting and you think about leading your family. But you need to be involved way before it gets to that point. The pastor says, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Another version of the ESV just says, don't exasperate. Exasperating your children looks like having a smothering or controlling, a harsh or critical or just being, having impossible expectations. It's toughness without tenderness. It's treating all your kids the same regardless of their personality or of their temperament. A discouraged child's heart is ripe for the work of Satan. It's ripe for him to speak lies into their heart. In hindsight, some of you have already have your kids, and they're out of the house, or they're raised. And it's easy to look back on the way that you raised your kids or the ways that you parented and feel regret or feel guilt or feel shame or see all the mistakes that you've made. But I just want to remind us, the passage this morning is not saying to live this way, to act this way, because you're trying to earn something from God. So this is who you've already been declared to be. And so you get to live in light of it. God's able to work in your kids despite you, whether for good or for bad. Lastly, I would just say, it's never too late to apologize and ask for forgiveness from your kids. My dad modeled this well, I think, with me. There's often that as a kid, my dad would come to me and he would apologize for the way that he talked to me or the way that he treated me. He would own his mistakes and the way that he let his anger get in control of things. I am so grateful that is humbling. That's really humbling to come to your four-year-old or your five-year-old and say, hey, I, need, I need you to forgive me. I treated you in a way that didn't honor the Lord and didn't honor you. My dad modeled that for me growing up. It's never too late.
to apologize to our kids. It's never too late to own our sin. They're never too young for that. We get to model that and show that to them because we've been shown that. So new life in Christ changes our relationships at home. But Paul goes on as well to talk about how our new life in Christ, it changes our relationships at work. Verse 22, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. That word slaves is not really the kind of slaves that we think of more. Uh, more so, it's a, a thinking about like employee. It says obey, not only when, when their eye is on you to curry their favor. ESV says it this way, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. He says, you're not just trying to fake obedience. You're not just trying to do enough while your boss is watching. He says, the reason is, is because you do it with sincerity of heart because it's in reverence for the Lord. You see, fearing the Lord or or having reverence for the Lord means caring more about what God thinks than about what people think. And when your heart is to obey him in all things and to honor him in all things, his standards are way higher than any boss you will ever have. So the invitation is to honor the Lord in all things. And if your goal is to honor the Lord, you will always honor your boss. Verse 23, and so whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. So work heartily for the Lord and not for men. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, for there is no favoritism. Paul says, the Lord holds your reward, not your boss. Your reward is to honor, is the privilege of getting to honor the Lord in all that you do and being called his child. If you are being wronged, if you are being overlooked, if you are being mistreated or, or not being given what you feel as though you are due in your workplace, just know God sees that. He sees that. But you may not get justice here and now. Jesus did not get justice either in the here and now. But we can trust that God is the one who is just and the one who is good. And in the end, he will restore all things the way they should be. So talks to employees, but verse one of chapter four goes on and talks to master. It says, master, provide for your slaves what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Do what is right and fair. Paul's saying, don't be cheap. Don't try to get the most while spending the least. Treat people with respect. Be generous. The question is, Paul says, you're not really in charge. God is, and you report to him. And so the question is, how has God treated you? God's been incredibly merciful. He's been incredibly gracious. He's been incredibly generous with you. And so as a boss, take your cues from God rather than from your past bosses. And allow your relationships with those who you supervise to be characterized by the way that God has related to you. So our new life in Christ, it changes our relationship at home and our relationships at work. But lastly, Paul shows us that our new life in Christ changes our relationships with people that don't know Jesus yet. In verse 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God would open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which we are in chains. Pray that we would proclaim, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you would know how to answer everyone. Paul's saying as we think about our relationships with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers that don't know Jesus yet, he says we're to have an attitude of prayerful expectations. 
It's we're to have expectations and praying that God would give us the opportunity to proclaim the mystery of Christ as we should. And he says that we should do that. We should pray for those opportunities to come both with our words and with our lives. Paul says here, our words, we have to tell people about Jesus. Our words are incentive, he says in verse, uh, verses 5 and 6, they tend to be gracious and seasoned with salt. That means instead of our message being combative or agenda-driven, it's the way that we speak should be intended to be preserving and pretended to be life-giving. I'm sure we all know too many Christians who just love everything as a battle. Every discussion, everything is always a battle. And Paul says, your words, the way you speak, the way that you live, it's not supposed to be a battle. It's supposed to be gracious, seasoned with salt. It's supposed to be preserving and life-giving. But as well, he says, your words are not enough. You also need to reveal Jesus with your lives. You walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Verse 6. Your life gives you credibility when you speak. Your life does not speak for you. I need you to hear this. Your life gives you credibility when you speak about Jesus. It doesn't speak for you. you we need both. A lot of times Christians have this like idealist view that if we would just like live for Jesus, then like people would just like understand exactly what that meant and would just believe in God and follow him and obey. That's just not how it's ever worked. The proclamation of the gospel has always involved words, but it always needs our lives as well. So we seek to live lives that honor the Lord and to speak in ways that proclaim him and honor him. We need both. <clears throat> so what does that look like? I think... In college, I got the opportunity to share my faith with my friend Cody, and um, I remember uh, one evening we were together, and after I had got the chance to share my testimony with him and, and talk with him about what my faith was, I remember there being this long moment of silence, then him responding after our conversation saying, I felt like I could actually hear what, I, what you had to say, Brandon, and trust you, because of what you said and the way that you live they matched. Cody was looking at my life, but that wasn't enough. He needed to hear me talk about Jesus as well. Me just living a different life in front of my friend would never have got, given him the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. It would have just taught him that like, you can be a good person without God. Our lives and our words, they must go together. That's our heart for, as we think about reaching people and here in our city of Dubuque, that our lives would open doors for us to declare the gospel to people that would, so that they would choose to follow him. I want people to see that God doesn't just affect our hour on Sunday, but he affects every part of who we are. The gospel changes our marriages and our kids and our parenting and our jobs, changes the way that we spend our time, it changes who we spend our time with, because it's about people seeing and experiencing and knowing Jesus. I want people who don't know Jesus yet to see that. I want them to see the ways that Jesus has changed everything about who we are. Even in the imperfect process of what that looks like, I want them to see how God is at work graciously in, in creating a people who is different for himself. But I want the, the way that we live to open doors for us to speak about him. And so as we seek to live our lives with wisdom towards outsiders, we need to be careful how we live, but we need to be careful that we actually live in close enough relationships with people that don't know Jesus yet so that they'd actually get to see our lives. And this looks like us needing to prioritize our relationships and our friendships with our friends that don't know Jesus yet. 
to schedule our time around theirs and to be deliberate about putting ourselves in their lives because we long for them to know Jesus. We genuinely care about them and we genuinely love them. That's the reason we want them to know Jesus. So that looks like us inviting our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers into our home and looking for ways that we might serve them. This is usually not convenient and it's usually not cheap. Just as a spoiler alert for you. Loving people well, serving people so that they might come to know and love and follow Jesus. It's usually not convenient. It's usually not cheap. It is always worth doing. It's always worth doing. That means you need to eat out less so that you can have more funds in order to be able to host people in your home. It's worth doing. It means if you need to prioritize in your schedule, making sure to have time with your friends and neighbors and coworkers that aren't yet Christians, <clears throat> then prioritizing that and setting aside time for those kinds of things. Hannah and I, the first thing that we did the summer that we moved into our house here in Dubuque is that we threw a block party for our neighborhood. We made invitations, and I walked around with the cutest two-year-old at the time, and, and uh, we walked around and just invited all our neighbors to come to a party. We had great food, and we had a really good time, and the reason that we did this is because we wanted to get to know our neighbors, and that was not going to happen unless we were the ones who did the initiating with it. And so we threw a party. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't convenient, but it was totally worth doing. That has opened us lots of doors for us into building relationships with our neighbors that live in the cul-de-sac, live in the street that is around us. And it's not been this wildly, we didn't just dive into deep spiritual conversations with all those friends, but what it did is it opened up doors and we're slowly building those relationships with people over time. He and I have been praying for our new neighbors who just moved in next to us. We've been praying. The house was kind of on the market for the last three or four months, and we've spent the last months praying about who would move into that house, praying that God would bring a family who needs friends, that needs relationships, that we could serve and love well, praying that God might bring a family that has little kids that we could uh, help serve and take care of and that our kids could play with and that could build relationships with them. Just last weekend, a new couple moved into that house, and they're relatively new to town. And they have little kids that are right around the ages that our kids are. And they're looking for relationships. We have had a prayerful expectation. Paul, in this verse is right. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful. Be thankful. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. That's what we've been doing. And we are trusting that as God has been at work clearly in bringing a new family into our neighborhood that we might love and serve, that God will give us chances to love and serve and proclaim to Jesus, proclaim Jesus to them. You see, the gospel changes everything about how we relate. It changes our relationships at home. It changes our relationships at work. It changes our relationships with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers that don't know Jesus yet. All of these things, all of these relationships require us to genuinely put the needs of others before ourselves. Submission, love, obedience, fair and just treatment, steadfast, continual prayer, gracious speech towards outsiders. All of those things are hard. It's not easy to do all of those things. That's not the default mode of who we are. So the question is, where do we get the motivations? Where do we get the power to do that? We get it in Jesus. 
Philippians chapter 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant in yourselves. You cannot miss this. Verse 5, have this mindset among yourselves. It's yours in Christ Jesus. The mindset in which you put others before yourselves, it is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, I just need you to hear this. If we just look to Jesus as the example of how we're supposed to live, then he can, the only thing he can be for us is a crushing weight because we will never live up to his example. It'll be an example that we can never hope to imitate, that we just keep on failing and keep on messing up at. But Paul says in Philippians, you have this mindset, it's yours in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. You have new life in Christ. Jesus is not just your example, he is your power. Jesus is not just your example. He is your power. And so if we want to seek to put the needs of others before our own so that we might put on Christ-like character and root out sin in our lives, the only way that we do that is with his power in us. It's not about wanting it more or just trying harder or sucking it up or pulling up the bootstraps. It's about trusting and relying on him. So it's his power in us. But it's not just his power that's shoving us a direction. It's his power in us that is graciously calling us. See, because the gospel says that while you were sinners, Christ died for you. When you were God's enemies, when you hated him, when you lived for yourself, that's when Christ came for you. And so the gospel calls us to give ourselves back to the king who gave himself for us. I find that when I'm not believing the gospel and when I'm not remembering Christ's incredible sacrifice and his love for me and his undeserved grace, I get really self-righteous and I lean towards bitterness and I lean towards pleasing myself. When my sacrificial actions aren't appreciated or aren't noticed the way I think they should be, I get offended or I feel unappreciated. And it's in those patterns of thought I often hear the Spirit's gentle but the Spirit's gentle but firm voice tugging at my heart saying, remember. Remember Jesus' love for you. Remember His sacrifice for you. It was given in spite of my rejection, not because I loved Him back. You see, the ways that we're called to relate to others They have to be done without a need for a response. Otherwise, it's just manipulation. Instead, love looks like serving and caring and submitting and honoring others, putting the needs of others before ourselves because we seek to honor and obey Jesus, not because we need to get something back in return. See, communion for us is a chance for us to remember all that Jesus did for us. It's a chance for us to remember every week how much we needed him to do for us and how greatly he met our need. With the bread, remember that Jesus' body was broken for us as he lived the life that we were supposed to live. And with the drink, we remember that his blood was shed for us as he died the death that we were supposed to die, that we deserved to die. And what we remember as we take communion is that Jesus did all of this for us while we were still sinners, when we were his enemies, not when we loved him back. 
And it's here that you find the strength to live for him. It's out of a joyful response to all that he has done for you. It's out of a response to the supreme king of the universe giving everything for you and his work being altogether sufficient. So every church does communion differently. At River City, during our time of musical worship at the end, you just go back, there's a station on the left and on the right, and you dip the bread in the juice. Communion is between you and the Lord, and so you go back whenever you are ready. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus because, again, communion is about celebrating and remembering what Jesus has done for us, what we have been given by faith in him. So as we take communion this morning, Remember all that God has done for you. Remember that he is enough. And ask him to show you where he wants your relationships at home and at work and with your non-Christian friends and neighbors and coworkers and family to change, to be renewed, to be restored as you live your new life in light of his life in you. As you do it by his strength, for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you have given everything for us. God, we long that you would empower us to give everything back to you. God, we ask that you would help our, you'd empower our relationships at home and at work and with our non-Christian friends and families and coworkers to be characterized by Christ's love for us, by his character made known towards us, by his love revealed in the person and work of Jesus. And so God, we just come, we just... We need you to be the one that renews and restores us. We need you to be the one that corrects our hearts. We need you to be the one that gives us new life and new power to live for you and obey for you and to reflect and reveal you to our world. And so, God, we say all of our lives is yours. We say all of it is yours. It's for you. You are worthy of everything we have to give. You are always worthy. You will always be worthy. We give it all to you.